I'm not going to knit a fucking octagon. Very well. Do you want Belshamaroth? <laughs> That's how you get Belshamaroth. <laughs> was it a good night? It was really good. Katie doesn't really get to like go out and be able to have a drink and go to a drag show and a standing drag show. There weren't many numbers, but all the numbers were really good and really funny. And I had a very nice time like dancing with my sister. So that yeah. was all very cool. And you didn't, if it had been really long, you'd have worried about the train. Exactly. So we got our terrible sugary cocktails and made friends. I taught my sister how to make friends in a smoking area. <laughs> and met some Terry Pratchett fans. So, you know, oh, they there might you listen. Go. They're fucking everywhere. Lift up a rock and they're there like inside. <laughs> <laughs> Brackets complimentary. <laughs> I like lifting up rocks to find interest insects. Thank you, random reviewer who I've forgotten. <laughs> What's, ha what's happened? The release date for Amazing Morris is coming out December 16th. We're very excited. Exciting. We are exciting. Sorry, listeners. I was at a drag show last night. I can't do sentences now. It's all Lawrence Cheney's fault. As everybody knows, drag shows do take away your ability to grammar for several days. Uh, weird cherry Coke cocktails. There is something beautiful about an angry, tall, stunning Scottish drag queen screaming that just kills your ability to use sentences well <laughs> i just realized we try not to say that word on the podcast no no it's um, okay um but yeah the oh oh yes good the amazing morris is amazing coming morris out is coming out we can do um, a little cinema trip together we could what other nerdy things we've been following um your 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 large tv commitment is that going well oh yeah so Rings of Power finale aired. That was incredible. And oh, I was good. right about a thing. Okay, um, good. I won't say more for spoilers because you haven't seen it. Uh, the She-Hulk finale was really fun. Lots of people didn't like it. I thought it was very good because uh, She-Hulk's done a whole silly fourth wall breaking thing throughout it. So when everything started coming to a head to a finale, she stops and like jumps out of the show and goes and has a go at Marvel and jumps back into it. And it's just... Oh, we like meta. <laughs> It's completely in the spirit of what a like ridiculous, fun little show it is, so I greatly enjoyed that. Good. House of Dragon continues ridiculous, and I love it deeply. Good. Um, you can tell there's been a good episode when it even makes it across my timeline. Yeah. Yeah, no, the last episode was incredible. Emmy for Paddy Constantine. He deserves it. He did a lot of work there. I had to turn my Twitter timeline back to chronological. Um, my brief adventure with letting the algorithm decide what I was going to look at. Well, I first saw the shark Huberi, yeah, uh, which I'll link to. Um, but then after that, it went downhill. You can't see anything from the people you follow on that setting. It's always no. just thing you like this, thing you like this. Like I scrolled down and down and down, and literally ten in a row, not from someone I follow. And I follow like a thousand people, so I'm like right, fuck you, chronological. I tend to do. I've take, gone back to doing chronological, but I do chronological, and then I'll switch to the algorithm one. When, oh, smart! Like, so you don't miss any of the big ones. Yeah. By this time next week, I believe. We, there will be a new Taylor Swift album. I think you're going to say Prime Minister, but new Taylor Swift album. Oh, uh, probably be a new Prime Minister as well. <laughs> Have you seen the Daily Star are doing a live feed of a lettuce decomposing? <laughs> yeah, is it going to outlast Liz Truss? They put googly eyes on it now. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> I was concerned that they weren't going to put googly eyes on the Prime Minister outlasting lettuce. I was just thinking the other day I haven't put googly eyes on anything in a while. No, me neither. I need to get some giggly eyes. We've lost some of our childish idiocy. Glee, <laughs> Glee yeah. <laughs> Glee idiocy. It's a fine line. I very much felt that TikTok video that was like, thank God Glee didn't exist in the time of, um, God, what was it? 
that uh, Sam oh, Smith song. That sounds unholy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then somebody had said in the comments, yeah, never mind that, Montero. Can you imagine? Oh. <laughs> Oh no! I mean, I can. I don't want I can, to. So clearly, <laughs> I am very much with. I can't remember the name of that particular TikToker. She's re- she's that really funny Scottish one, yeah, not yeah. Eleanor Morton, the other really funny Scottish yeah, yeah, yeah. one. Um, but her overwhelming loathing of Matt Morrison from Glee yeah. is so relatable. I'll try and remember to link it, listeners. TikTok. Yeah, I'll know what I mean. That's fine. That's enough. No TikTok Scottish, not Eleanor Morton. <laughs> oh, Scottish. Yeah, there we go. This listeners, little uh, little. Fourth wall breaking, like we don't constantly. It's the reason sometimes the show notes might be slightly patchy. If I don't remember to do it as I'm editing, I have to then rely on my notes, which are sometimes just nothing useful at all. Yeah, no, we don't really have a fourth wall. We don't really have a third, second or first wall. Yeah, no wonder we're chilly, huh? Honestly, the housing crisis is ridiculous. (laughs) I haven't even got walls. Just a ceiling, don't ask. (laughs) Fucking laws of physics, can't afford them. In this economy. (laughs) In my day. We float. Should we, are we making a podcast? Yeah, ideally, I think we've got the setup, we've got the plan. We could do something else. Well, I mean, we're here now. I'll load up Steam and play a bit of Age Vampires instead. I (laughs) I mean, kind (laughs) of, now I've said that, right? (laughs) No, okay, podcast, podcast. Yeah, podcast. What the fuck is our podcast called? God knows. The Magnus Archives, I'm still fucking feral about the fact that they talked about something. I have just got to such a good point in it that it's really difficult not to just be binging it constantly. But you you listen to stuff as you're doing other things. Yes, but I've discovered that if I listen to anything while I'm writing the Friends book, I very much take on the tone of whatever podcast I'm listening to. Which oh, if I'm listening quite to, <laughs> If I'm listening to TV recap podcasts, great. Cosmic horror, not a great tone for a book about sitcoms. Completely disagree, but fine. <laughs> Ross crawled from the sea, tentacles flailing. Did we ever talk on the podcast about like the top list of things that H.G. Lovecraft used? No. I'm sure there was a mandible or two. Yeah. I feel like H.P. Lovecraft liked a mandible. It's not squamous. That's the headline of this article. Hideous, faint, nameless, antique or antiquarian, singular, singularly, madness, abnormal, blasphemy, blasphemous, accursed and loathing slash loathsome. Ah, yes. The eight genders. Yes. All right. I'll link to that as well. Okay. Right. Podcast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sorry. Right. The Magnus Archives. (laughs) (laughs) Episode 95. (laughs) The Last Hero. You no. introduce this usually, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know, but I got distracted by the Magnus Archives and now I can't remember our fucking intro. Statement begins. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And we are here today to talk about The Last Hero, the 27th Discworld novel. Notes on spoilers before we crack on. We are a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book The Last Hero, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series. And we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Pulled in an aircraft by many, many swamp dragons under dubious physical laws. Perfect. Have we got anything to follow up on? Uh, yeah, probably. Cool. Do you know what it is? No. All right. Oh, we should probably say at the top of the episode, uh, not follow up, but follow on, we're soon going to do a crossover episode with one of our fellow Pratchett podcasts. Pratchett. Ha- hashtag make you chat. 
we'll be covering Where's My Cow? The supplemental book to the Discworld book, Thud. So warning for listeners who are reading along for the first time that this will be jumping ahead in the canon and might contain spoilers. Mm-hmm. But if you don't mind that, uh, yes, tweet any of your questions to at Pratchat with the hashtag MakeYeChat or send them to us and we will hopefully answer them on the podcast. We're also coming up to our 100th episode. We are. It's very exciting. Joanna has had the spectacularly risky idea of having some kind of live cast. Yes, we're talking about, uh, we haven't decided on the platform or even if we're definitely doing this or when. But we if we get enough feedback on it really because what we don't want to do is do it and then there's no one there. <laughs> yeah, that would be awkward. But yes, we are aiming for some kind of live cast. It'll be Francine and I, there'll be a chat thing so you can ask us questions and chat to us. Hopefully we'll be able to get a couple of people up on screen with us if they want to. We might do some silly quizzes. I quite like the idea of putting together some Truth Shall Make Ye Fret specific trivia. Oh God. I mean, feel free. <laughs> or just a wrong answers only Discworld quiz. Also, thank you to all of the listeners on Twitter who when I tweeted the announcement that Amazing Morris is coming out on the 16th of December with guess what our Christmas episode is going to be about? Re- refuse to answer. <laughs> no, no, excellent responses. Another episode on Hogfather, She-Hulk finale, Reservoir Dogs. We've noted all of these suggestions down, but we'll probably still be doing The Amazing Morris. No, I want to do Reservoir Dogs with puppets. Oh, uh, see, I, I thought Festive Quantum sounded fun. Yeah, but puppets. All right, Quantum with puppets. Yay! Cool. Okay, that was not follow-up. Francine, <laughs> do you want to introduce us? Okay, I will. So The Last Hero, uh, as Joanna said, and we then quickly Googled to confirm, is the 27th Discworld novel. That is canon, even though it is a novella. They didn't go point fives on it. The title is probably, I'm guessing, taken from The Last Hero by G.K. Chesterton, which is a poem mm-hmm. I'll link to. You've got a copy that still has the blurb on it. I haven't sounded mine off. I just took the dust jacket off. The blurb. He's been a legend in his own lifetime. He can remember the great days of high adventure. He can remember when a hero didn't have to worry about fences and lawyers and civilization. He can remember when people didn't tell you off for killing dragons. But he can't always remember these days where he put his teeth. He's really not happy about that bit. So now with his ancient sword and his new walking stick and his old friends and their very old friends... Cohen the Barbarian is going on one final quest. He's going to climb the highest mountain in the Discworld and meet his gods. He doesn't like the way they let men grow old and die. The last hero in the world is going to return what the first hero stole. With a vengeance. That'll mean the end of the world if no one stops him in time. So it is a slightly different take on a Discworld novel. Uh, as Pratchett said in a 2002 interview with SFF, SFF World, that's Sierra Foxtrot Foxtrot, Rincewind makes a useful appearance in The Last Hero, which will be a book mightily illustrated by Paul Kidby. I mean seriously illustrated, the art taking as much or more room as the text. I've written the story and the artwork I've already seen is very, very good. We're talking about the size of Dinotopia, he said. Like Dinotopia, the story will be told in the pictures as well. Unlike Dinotopia, it'll actually have a good storyline and better artwork. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read Dinotopia and I did have to Google that. But I agree, Paul Kidby does better artwork. I've also never read Dinotopia, so I won't venture an opinion. <laughs> but I'm as assuming the- Paul Kidby's better. <laughs> Pratchett phrased it quite nicely, I think. He was starting to experiment by this point and he said, we're heading for 30 Discworld books now and to keep it fresh, I'm franchising it. Only I'm franchising it to myself. Uh, and uh, Paul Paul Kidby indeed is the co-creator of this book it is a Pratchett and Kidby creation and so we'll introduce him briefly because we know a lot about Pratchett and his life already according to Paul Kidby's website and a couple of interviews I read 
he was kind of self-taught, kind of taught by an old anatomical artist who'd become an art teacher. And he knocked on her door one day. I was like, teach me art. Uh, oh, yeah, that's lovely. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, he left school at 17 and after a stint making false teeth, worked as a commercial artist doing things like uh, spray painting designs onto roller blinds um, before becoming a freelance illustrator creating magazine covers for uh, like sci-fi magazines and game magazines and then creating video game packaging, uh, including iconic pieces such as Sonic the Hedgehog, Mortal Kombat, Batman and Earthworm Jim. Amazing. There's quite a lot said about his kind of art process in various places. Um, I've got, very stupidly, because it was very cheap, a digital copy of the Imaginarium. I'm going to get a proper version at some point, but I just got this for the for the text fits um, and it's just interesting reading about his art process, especially because like uh, Rob Wilkins mentioned Josh Kirby's art process in his book, yes. um, which was very haphazard and mad artist. That's like a subgenre of mad professor, isn't it? Mad. Yeah, mad artist. <laughs> mad art genius. Um, whereas Paul Kidby seems to be more of the kind of industrious Pratchett type of creator. So yeah. I can see why they work together so prolifically, uh, like pretty much as soon as they started working together, because they worked together on things like Science of Discworld before um, Josh Kirby sadly passed away. Yeah. Paul Kidby has like created a bronze bust of Pratchett, which is really cool. And I'll link to a video of that process, Rob Wilkins cameos. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, hey, there's loads of cool stuff. And he, he, he works like with acrylics and with oils and with watercolors, I've seen him do. And he's a very cool artist. And I'm getting very into reading about him, but I won't go on about it too long because we've got a book to cover. Yes. This book in particular had quite a fun like making process, didn't it? Yeah. So, some more context for him working with Terry Pratchett. He literally met him at a book signing and kind of handed an envelope of drawings to Terry in the hope that oh, yeah. he'd get a call. <laughs> the first thing he did for Discworld was the Pratchett portfolio, which was an illustrated compendium that came out in 1996. Oh, we need to find one of those too, do we? Yes, at some point. But yeah, so Terry Pratchett asked Paul to work on this illustrated novella. And it just, they didn't want to buy specialist software for it. But, um, Pratchett had been gifted a copy of Photoshop 6. This was Rob Wilkins' first year working in the chapel, but they had to get Paul's paintings, which were all acrylic on board, mm -hmm. onto the computer that they were using. And they found a specialist in Dunstable, 100 miles away, who had the right software, uh, with the right hardware to do this, scan the images at a re resolution needed. Yeah. So every day they were like, or a few times a week, Rob Wilkins was having to drive to Dunstable get these pictures uploaded, load them onto his, go back to Salisbury, load them onto his laptop, and then they'd go through it all in Photoshop to put the book together. Yeah. The bit about the lag that Photoshop used to have on high-rise images as well was painful to read, like spending an <laughs> afternoon waiting for a blur effect to go ahead. Oh, God. And and nowadays, like if I'm doing something on Photoshop and it takes more than five seconds, I'm like, this is bullshit. So <laughs> how quickly we get spoiled. Yeah. So a lot of work went into this book. Mm. But yeah, Terry Pratchett loved it so much it was never recreated without the pictures. Quite right too. Yeah, absolutely. So in this first half, we're doing two episodes on this because it is a novella. And this ends on page 77 in the paperback, 73 in the hardback with the dragon merely smiled. In this section, we open on the turtle and musing on inevitable death. In the beginning, fire was stolen from the gods. Now we wheel towards the ending with a pointless albatross soaring over the skies of Ankh-Morpork. 
at the Unseen University, Vetinari peers through an omniscope. Word around the ambassadorial claxes is that the apocalypse is imminent. Cohen has abandoned the Agatian Empire to return fire to the gods, and it's up to Ankh-Morpork to stop him. The fire in question will be delivered via the medium of Agatian Thunderclay, and the ensuing explosion will collapse the disc's magical field. On the slopes of Cori Celesti itself, the Silver Horde comforts their kidnapped minstrel. Vetinari chats to Leonard of Quirm about a flying machine to chase down Cohen, who's currently requesting a saga from the miserable minstrel. Subcommittees form, and Rincewind doesn't wish to volunteer as a flotilla sets out to send a ship over the edge of the world. A bag of rubies changes hands, and Cohen plans to die, but not this soon as the evil Harry ambushes the Horde. The flotilla travels on, and Quirm continues to build while Hunan Ridcully gets ecumenical. Death detests Schrodinger, and he's checking the big hourglass while the Horde approaches the caves and Harry (laughs) warns the gods. The ragtag bunch of barbarian misfits make it through the caves and come across some bodies, while Carrot sews badges and dragons are tested. Very nice. Carrot with his little sewing, how lovely. Helicopter and loincloth watch! Yes! The bit is justified. Okay. In this specific book. Uh, Other stuff we keep track of, we do open on the turtle. We do. And I want to mention that specifically. We very much get to see it because a few pages later where they're talking about the fact that this the, the magical field collapsing will kill the disc, we get this incredible image of the dead disc and the oh dead God. turtle. Yeah, I, I I had like two double page spreads highlighted as my absolute favourite in this first one and that was one of the ones I couldn't choose between. It is so fantastic. It's a beautiful piece of artwork. It is. Ugh. So for Helicopter, I'm going with the pointless albatross because we also love an albatross. Not Not the... Well, we've still got another half of the book to go, Francine. All right. I feel like we need to give everything its time. Okay. So many loincloths. So many. There are many loincloths mentioned by name. Many loincloths mentioned by name more than once, I believe. Ah. But I'm going to pick the Cohen illustration as my favourite for this uh, for this first section. Super. Because he is the originator of the helicopter and loincloth watch. Yes, is he? Yes, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Actually, no, I don't think he is. I think Run the Barbarian is technically the originator of the loincloth, but... Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, Should we put the parrot in this? Oh, yeah, the parrot. Um, in on page well, twelve of the hardback, but there's an illustration of Leonard feeding some birds, and one of the birds is parrot with dog written on the side. And Joanna, can you tell me where a parrot with dog written on the side might have appeared before? The truth, <laughs> the which truth. I've heard, I've heard shall make ye fret. Well, I wouldn't put too much stock in whatever idiots keep saying that. Yep. Uh, <laughs> At least one listener just excitedly thought the name of the thing in the thing, and I'm very, very happy at the effect I've had on humanity. So, quotes, quotes. What's your favourite quote, Francine? My favourite quote, my favourite quote. Oh my god, this is such a big book to try and lug like around the desk. <laughs> and that's why I've got the paperback. Yeah, no, that would have been smarter. Oh gosh, there we go. He asked why we want to return fire to the gods, Hamish. Hey, someone's got to do it, cackled Hamish. Because it's a big world and we ain't seen it all, said Boy Willie. Because the buggers are immortal, said Caleb. Because of the way my back aches on chilly nights, said Truckle. The minstrel looked at Cohen, who was staring at the ground. Because, said Cohen, because they've let us grow old. Oh, that's a good moment. 
It is. We got the driving motivation behind the 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 quest. Quest, yes, behind thing. the quest. Thank you. Yes, the thing. Quite right. Um, and yeah, we'll 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 talk more about the kind of motivations and and fableness behind it in the next section. But thought we'd better get the important quote in. Get the important quote in. Mine what is we, much less important. Oh, good. <laughs> the valley was full of cool green light reflected off the towering ice of the central mountain. It shifted and flowed like water. Into it, grumbling and asking one another to speak up, walked the silver horde. Ooh. And we all know I like a pretty description and then something silly. We do. And that was like immediately mirroring the, the previous bit, wasn't it? Oh, yes. The sea was full of cool green light. Captain Carrot sat near the prow to the astonishment of Rincewind, who'd got out for a gloomy evening walk. He was sewing. <laughs> All right. Should we talk character? Yeah, let's. What have we got first? I mean, I know a lot of the characters here are people we've spent time with before, but uh, I started with Ridcully and Ponder because I think it was something interesting I noticed quite early on. I think because this is a novella, I feel for some people it feels like almost a um, a bit of a reintroduction to the Discworld, especially because we were just talking about how a lot of the last books seemed to be like big character celebrations. And obviously Thief of Time was going back to previous books so much. Mm-hmm. Here it's almost like, oh, here's a here's a fresh version of the characters. Like, So Ponder Stibbons gets introduced as new head of inadvisably applied magic. But they sort of work almost as if they were shiny new characters in this. And it explains yeah. things like Archchancellor Ridcully, who was technically the head of all known wizardry. Um, Archchancellor Ridcully's little quiff I particularly enjoyed was I'm forced to agree my lord <laughs> I did enjoy that moment I do also want to point out on the ponder thing uh, that it's been pointed out many times that the ponder in this looks a bit like Harry Potter except these drawings of ponder came before Harry Potter yeah it was the nineteen 1990- yeah because it was the 1996 compendium that Paul Kidby first drew for where he did oh. the ponder Stibbons character design and the first Harry Potter book didn't come out until 1997 well there you go also, like, obviously, Terry Pratchett wouldn't base a character on Harry Potter. <laughs> so there's one thing that Terry Pratchett was lacking in, of course, it was imagination. <laughs> yes, famously unimaginative Terry Pratchett. And the veterinaries about were having fun with him as well. My nearly quote was, so as a man full of get up and go must do, Lord Veterinary got up and went. Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> there's so many great little jokes in this. But um, I know he has, like, concentrated them. Yeah, it's like there's the same number of jokes in a normal Discworld book, but in half the amount of pages. Yeah. <laughs> but another one of my favourite illustrations is this page where you've got Vetinari on one side taking up half a page and then Rincewind on the other side taking oh, up yeah. half a page. They're kind of facing off at each other across the table with the conversation down the middle. Yes. Like it's such a thoughtful composition. It is. And there's like, they're obviously in the same place, but he's done slightly different lighting on them. Um, yeah. I- I like with Rincewind as well, you can still see quite a few of the sketch lines around yeah. his hand and stuff, which I feel gives it kind of a trembling feeling. Yeah, whereas Vetinari, like all the line work is really, really sharp and defined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, also, like how massively villainous Vetinari looks. Beautifully downturned mouth on both as well, but like it's all in the eyes, isn't it? Yeah, there's a sort of not malevolent but very hmm. calculating yeah yeah Vesinari and then this sort of sad pleading face on <laughs> Princewind it's nice to see Princewind again it is nice to see Princewind again this is probably my favorite Princewind book I think it's interesting to have him and Carrot in the same place because they're both like 
often our straight man of the operation. And although mm. we don't really get anything from Carrot's perspective, as we've talked about, it's interesting to have two normals. It's kind of interestingly handled. So I'm going to jump forward to Carrot. We'll come back to Leonard in a moment. Mm-hmm. But um, where him and Vimes are both introduced, again, it sort of introduces them as if we don't know these characters particularly mm. well already. Yeah. And it feels a bit like um, the whole defamiliarization thing. Yeah. 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 It's like, what if we didn't perfectly know Carrot, Captain Carrot Iron Founderson, who was standing to attention, radiating keenness and a hint of soap? Yes. And he manages to get that in. And then quite soon afterwards, the moment where he shows himself to be maybe not as simple as we thought when he kind of makes the, was that snark at Rincewind about the life flashing in front of his eyes? I was like, well, maybe this time we'll see something more interesting. I love it when Carrot gets a bitchy <laughs> moment. And Rincewind's like... Uh, <laughs> I do wish we Can't had like more. That, but <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had more Rincewind and Carrot. Actually, it's a dynamic I really like. Yeah. One Rincewind thing, actually, I have to mention. He's saying when he got like a badge with the number five on it for his sixth birthday, and said that had been the rottenest day of his life. Oh, think about that statement. Yeah, considering what else he's ha- what else has happened to Rincewind. So sad. I do want to give him a hug. I like that Vimes is kind of hanging around, smoking, lighting a cigar in the background, and he's described as the head of the watch first. And it's later on the page, I think, that he gets actually called Vimes. But I like that Vimes has, in this case, gone, we can make this legal, legal. Yeah. Uh, conspiracy, conspiracy to make an affray. Absolutely. Which is oh, fair. Yeah. I mean, I'm afraid that's what they're doing. <sighs> I'm sorry. So, Leonard. So, Leonard. Leonard's having a lovely time. Leonard's doing a lovely painting. Isn't he, though? It's a Mona Lisa, but with a big grin type yeah. painting. Mona Og. Mona oh, Og? yeah, Mona Og. Yeah. Again, off with the fairies, but aware of the fact that uh, Venari's not going to come and see him unless There's some, something. something's the matter. <laughs> I also kind of I like the impression because, you know, he starts talking about doing this uh, flying machine type thing mm. immediately, and Vetinari points out, like, Oh, you figured that out already. That that was quick. And you obviously the idea is Leonard is so intelligent and he's had this idea of a flying machine already. Yeah. But I feel like also it's a bit like I mean, there's probably like a million logical and safe things I could do, but this could this could be my chance to do the thing. Yeah. Oh finally. Like, <laughs> I can do it. Leonard at one point was described as a man who could invent seven new seven new things before breakfast, which is a nice uh, Alice through the looking glass reference of Yes. Uh, think why well, I can think of six impossible things for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, I also liked his demonstration of intelligence or genius being just casually drawing a perfect circle. Yeah. Because as the possibly apocryphal tale goes, that's how um, Leonardo, not Leonard da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci <laughs> proved his genius to the Pope at the time. I do also like uh, when Leonard's asking for like the people he needs to build the kite and he says mm-hmm. he wants apprentices and uh Vesnari saying, but I can get the finest craftsman. He said, nope, I have no use for people who have learned the limits of the possible. Yes. In other words, don't get me people who will tell me this will explode. Yeah. <laughs> get me people who are willing to see whether or not it explodes. Now that's quite Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is very well known for just going, no, don't tell me that's impossible. Just fucking do it. Yeah. And quite often it would work. I think there's probably some shared DNA there. We've also got Hunan Rickully. We do have Hugh Nonrid Collie. It's very nice to see him. He brings me joy. 
trying to get all of the religions to try and work together, but they've got to decide on the shape of the table first. Yes. And we have like a slightly more fleshed out idea of the religious society that we'll fork as well. I like I had to re-look up the word ecumenical for this because it said the gods don't like when we get ecumenical. And I was like, I thought ecumenical just like meant referring to the church in general. I always thought that ecumenical involves different forms of churches working together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going entirely off what I'd uh, gleaned from Father Ted. Um, <laughs> that would be an ecumenical matter. But it's a, it's another really beautiful illustration. And if you start looking at the detail on it, like the little kind of crossings and extra lines on his knuckles, he's got these very like thin bony fingers, like aged hands. Mm. That was just an incredible little detail I noticed. And obviously his full kind of more porky and bishop look. Yeah. As the uh, the chief priest of Blind Io. Or actually, if we're talking pictures before I forget, my other favourite in contention with Dead Disc is Leonard in Boat with Dragons. Oh, no, that is lovely. Which is just gorgeous. I, can, I can't stop looking at that. You've got like the sail that's the reflected shape of the moon almost, and you've got the silver light and the gold light and the just the lovely dragons. And yeah, such it's a gorgeous a, illustration. It's a beautiful picture that also somehow reminded me a tiny bit of Wacky Races. Sure, yeah. If if Wacky Races was serene. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since I watched anything like that. I mean, obviously, because I'm 31. <laughs> I've got a nephew, it's not been that long. The Silver Horde. Mm, speaking of being old. Speaking of older. Uh, yes, heroes, the lot of them. He's slightly retired now. So we've got Boy Willie, Truckle the Uncivil, Caleb the Ripper, Mad Hamish. Uh, eventually we get Vina the Ravenhaired. Yes. Which um, I, I don't think, and I'm, I'm ashamed I wouldn't, I didn't pick up on this, but annotated Pratchett point out, out probably a reference to Xena, the warrior princess. Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Speaking of the Horde, the guy, oh, which one was it? Vincent, was it? Yes, quite possibly. Vincent died by choking on a cucumber. Oh, yes. That was one of my favourite jokes in the entire book. Yes. Um, I learned quite recently that, in fact, it might have been the latest episode, no such thing in fish, so in which case it was yesterday. Um, <laughs> Marmaduke Constable, who fought in the Battle of Bosworth when he was in his 70s, mm-hmm. um, died a couple of years later by choking on a frog that was in his water. Marvellous. So I feel like there's a nice parallel there. Uh, <laughs> caused by ignoble choking incident. <laughs> Please no. carry on. <laughs> Obviously, we love the Silver Horde. We've seen what met them before in uh, interesting times. Mm. I prefer this as a book about them. Um, mm. But the poor minstrel, he's had a, yeah. having a time of it, isn't he? I don't think he really wants to be there. No. You have the illustration of the minstrel kind of yes. looking very <laughs> puffy-shouldered. and Poor sod. <laughs> and then you also get the introduction of evil Harry Dredd mm-hmm. and his henchmen. That's me, slime, gark. Ah, lost your tongue, have you? Having Sylvester's, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Just a good blood curdling scream, that's all you need. And I love how much they all respect each other, despite the fact Harry Dredd is kind of, you know, opposite side for them. Mm. I was very much like, at least we all know the same code. Yeah, yeah, the hero's code. Yeah. Which is we basically might- just a narrative. Convenience. It's it's your place within the narrative. You are the trope and we know it. Uh, They wouldn't put it like that, but yeah. And um, you've got Butcher, who's one of the uh, stupid henchmen. And uh, this is great. The believes anything 
anything anyone tells him, can't see through the most ridiculous disguise, would let a transvestite washerwoman go free even if she had a beard you could camp in, falls asleep really easily on a chair near the bars and carries his keys on a big hook on his belt so they can be easily lifted off. Super. And a lot of respect for Harry for making sure he's got that as a henchman. (laughs) Oh, oh, sorry. Along with slime, nork, nork. Just, just beautiful. Shame they didn't last long, really. Well, yes, but <laughs> all the all the effort that went into those illustrations to be killed, killed off, off a few a few minutes later. <laughs> but now they'll live on forever in our hearts and pages and podcasts. Of course, locations. Locations, yes. So I'm going to bring back the All Roads Lead to Ankh Morpork section because mm-hmm. we stopped keeping track of whether or not all the books have been there for a while. But it's interesting me again. Of course, well, we did go because we found out, didn't we? Yeah. Of course, we do go to Ankh-Morpork here. Yes. Um, but we also get an incredible, like, another two-page spread illustration of the city. Yes. Which is one of those great studies in, like, using almost just one colour. It's not quite... Yeah, but it's very desaturated, muted, limited palette. It's... But, yeah, no, it's beautiful anyway. But it's great, like, just the longer you look at this illustration, the more little details you spot. Like, there's the disc, you can see the way the Tower of Art is kind of twisted on itself as it goes up like someone sort of wrung it out like a sponge (laughs) you've got the albatross wheeling over which is this one like really beautiful kind of hit of white over quite like you said desaturated page got the opera house which is just a box with bits stuck on the front Mm -hmm. so yeah it's an absolute delight it brings me much much joy distance look at the river as it goes on it's not like the port yeah yeah possibly Maybe there's a flotilla forming. You've got to keep an eye out for the formation of flotillas in your ports. Oh, I always do. And then, of course, we get the explanation of why they've been asked to solve this problem. Uh, the Agatian government believes us to be capable of anything, said Lord Vetinari. We have zip, zing, vim, and a go-getting can-do attitude. Oh, yes, that sounds very Ray Bradbury, that does. It does. <laughs> zip, vim, vigour. Zest and... Uh, oh, fuck, what's the last one? <laughs> gusto. That's it. Zest and gusto. I can't say all of those words. Get out of bed and explode. <laughs> that's, that's his writing advice. Thank you, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Instructions unclear. I have now scattered myself <laughs> over quite a wide area. Much like a swamp dragon. <laughs> um, we also get a beautiful illustration of Dunn manifesting. Oh, yes, yes, um, yes. This incredible kind of citadel of the gods rising up out of the mountain peak. Very tacky, love it. Which, if you look really closely, you can just see off to one side on a sort of jutting little outpost, this tiny little hut with a little tree. And then finally, mostly just because I like the name and the, again, playing with the tropes, we have the Impassable Caves of Dread. Yes, yes, we do. Which the the Horde are heading into. They're doing the, um, well, we know the answer to the riddle. It's teeth. (laughs) It's always teeth. And teeth, of course, is one of the uh, riddle answers (laughs) from The Hobbit. 30 white horses on a red hill. The time one was the one I memorised, and I'm not sure I can even do it anymore, but I used to... Something about... This, this thing, thing, all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, and grinds hard bones to meal, except I missed some out. There's something about wears mountains down. Uh, yes, uh, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountains down. There we go. Uh, right, not The Hobbit. Not The Hobbit, we're talking about The Last Hero. 
The, uh, yes. Okay. No, it's all right. We reached the end of the list. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Well done, us. All right. We can talk about the Hobbit now if we want. Or, or get a coffee. <laughs> I think coffee might be a better idea. Right. Little bits we liked. And we're starting with practical philosophy, Francine. We are. I just like the way that physics is portrayed in this book. You know, all of the concepts are there, but just with slightly fun language. I don't know if physics was ever called practical philosophy, actually, but I, I would fully believe it was at some point. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the way learners like, yeah, no, if we... Sure, yeah, if we push something fast enough off the end of the world, it's probably come back. Why not? Sun does it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I believe that sufficient down eventually becomes up, my lord. Ah, is this philosophy? Practical philosophy, my lord. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, no, just a, just various bits throughout where Leonard gets to be a weird little scientist. Very enjoyable. Excellent. I love that. Um, oh, yeah, and the burial mound. Yes, I suppose this is a bit more on the on the main theme, isn't it? Again, but so Cohen at one point is sitting on an ancient burial mound, a little far away from the camp, just thinking, remembering, and it's obviously kind of a parallel to the uh, tomb of the forgotten hero, the memorial of the the unknown soldier. Sorry, the unknown yeah. soldier. Yeah, the unknown soldier, and um, yeah, just the idea that this to Cohen represents, I think, all. Fallen all heroes. heroes, all forgotten yeah. heroes, and you know himself in some way, and all those. I'm, I'm sure he's, he's he's doing some thinking. Um, um, it also kind of beautifully harkens back to um, that line from Reaper Man. No, it's not from Reaper Man. It's from a book we haven't got to yet. Okay, <laughs> tell me later. <laughs> so it harkens forward to a line from a book we haven't got to yet sorry i'm very nearly bugging us up there turn off the omniscope come on <laughs> crap now there's only one future <laughs> oh no all right but yeah um, sorry uh I'm, I'm not sure i can read this with a speech impediment so i'm not going to but <laughs> i can still remember him as the the, the yeah. line there, and it's only slightly tempered by the fact he's not wearing his false teeth. I think only slightly, but then that's part of the joy of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great moment that I love. I think it's only a couple of pages after that, um, although we've got slightly differing page numbers. Um, but it's when Vetinari is kind of explaining this plan to the wizards, who are a bit distrustful of Leonard, specifically the dean. Mm. And we haven't really had fun with the wizards and the dean for a while, so I'm very glad he's here. <laughs> And he's sort of doing this, what do we know of this man? Um, what about bloody stupid Johnsons? And he says, we all know about artists, don't we? Flibberty gibbets to a man. <laughs> True that. <laughs> There's just so many things I love about that one sentence. A, it's the Dean delivering it and only the Dean could deliver flibberty gibbets to a man. And the um, same thing as Leonard is very much disapproving of the Dean as well when Dean's like, and then we can rain fire on people who deserve, deserve it, of course. And that's like, no. No raining no, fire. No, not. <laughs> no one would do that. It's wrong with everybody. <laughs> but also to just get in a little swipe at Arsis in this beautifully illustrated novella. Flippity yeah. <laughs> gibbets to the man. Is that, is that a bit? Yes. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Hurry up. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. At this point, I should point out a detail from Rob's book, which is that Paul Kidby's coat of arms is two snails rampant. Perfect. <laughs> It's very important. We all know that. 
Liberty Gibbet. Danger, Francie. Danger. Danger. <laughs> Advantage. When we touch. Bah, bah, bah. Where? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think it is well illustrated and then blatantly pointed out in this book that it is a lot easier to focus on small scale immediate danger than it is to pretty much almost immediate but much larger scale danger. So at this point, oh, it is a flotilla, Joanna. We're back with flotilla. It was a small oh, I love a flotilla, flotilla that set sail from Ankh Morfolk the next day. It wasn't that the prospect of the end of the world was concentrating minds unduly, because that is a general and universal danger that people find it hard to imagine. But the patrician was being rather sharp with people, and that is a specific and highly personal danger, and people had no problem relating to it at all. <laughs> it's, um, oh, it almost, let's actually hark back, um, unless I'm remembering our conversation in the future, to the little <laughs> apocalypses we were talking about with the Five Horsemen. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Little mini yeah. apocalypse sets, but yeah, I think he does. He does a good job of um, a, a, a good book like this. Does need to have the personal danger on top of the large danger, as we saw with with his earlier Rincewind ones. You've always got Rincewind in peril on top of the world in peril. Yes, um, and oh, also kind of in the same vein, but the the kind of wizards being neutered by the fact this was all going on right at the hub was quite a clever thing to do. Yes, because we've already seen that the wizards can fetch people back from different continents and can do this and that. It's like, <laughs> not here, you can't <laughs> beat that. My world, <laughs> Deus Ex, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Amazing um, sagas, sagas. Oh yeah, so the minstrel has agreed to write the saga of the Silver Horde. So now they're teaching him how to write a proper saga because he's more of a love song minstrel. <laughs> and I like this kind of almost rip apart of the genre. So you have like, well, you've got to open by describing how you feel about singing this saga, how it makes your blood race, and you've got to tell them what a, what a great saga is going to be. It's just like a massive piss take of Beowulf. Yes. And uh, then you've got to start describing what the weather was like and all your sentences have got to be the wrong way around. Of course. So bright was the day, which there's... One of the watch books involves, I think it's Cheery and Detritus, but it might be earlier. It might have been Cuddy going together to get a statement at the Alchemist Guild. And you get these two very different descriptions. And uh, the one from the dwarf is bright was the day and high were oh, our yeah. hearts when we set off to the... <laughs> yes, good good remembering. Uh, and of I course think you're right, the was Cuddy, yeah. Yeah, and it would be the dwarves that do the uh, yeah. saga-style police reports. <laughs> Very nice. And then it keeps going on. And, uh, no one talks. They spake. They did spake. <laughs> up, up spake Wolf the Sea Rover. <laughs> and people have always got to be something. So Cohen the Barbarian or Cohen the Bold-Hearted or Cohen the Slayer of any or any of that class of a thing. Um, which the particular any of that class of a thing made me realise that Cohen has a lot of similar speech patterns to Gaspode. Yeah. Who I think also sort of says any class of a thing. Nice. Um, and if you think about it, there's actually quite a lot of similarities between Cohen and Gaspode. So I'm, uh, I think they're spiritual cousins. Well, I think one of them is very keen to be in mortal peril at all times, and one would really prefer not. Okay. Well, if you think about the ending where Gaspode gets like a nice, comfortable bed mm. and a collar, and he runs away from it and rolls in dirt almost immediately. Yeah, that's true. 
All and right. then you compare it to Cohen becoming the emperor of the Agatean Empire mm. and then wandering off to go and return fire to the gods. Rolling in dirt. Yeah. Metaphorically. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. Gaspode's a cross between Rincewind and Cohen then. Yes. Um, but Cohen in the heart. Cohen in the heart. Um, no, flea, that's stop, flea stop ridden in the fur. <laughs> okay, that was fine. <laughs> I was not about to make a dick joke for a scene. No, it's just that the usual thing is uh, something on the street, something in the sheets, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and then we get gods playing games again, mm-hmm. which is really nice in this Rincewind and Cohen story to kind of take us back to uh, The Colour of Magic and the Light Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And this ominous line at the end of the section where gods are playing games of um, they forgot what happened if you let a pawn get all the way up the board. Yeah, the the gods playing game scenes before were very much, and here's what gods involved this time. Yeah, whereas the star of the show this time is the is the pawn. I think absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of tropes and stuff gone to the bigger stuff that kind of call back to color and magic and things, aren't there? Yeah, there's. Um... A lot, a lot of the tropes of which Pratchett was very self-aware of, obviously, and the colour of magic and the life is fantastic. That was the point. It was a, a parody of those things. But I yeah. think a more face-on acknowledged in this. So the, the big passages about Harry being st- sticking to the tropes, you know, do, doing the right thing. He's got a he's got a temple, but he always makes sure that there's a there's a back way out. There's a yeah. He's like a, yeah. I, I know how things are meant to be, and he'll never explain why. But there's just some real heavy meta areas. So there's that bit, obviously. You've got Rincewind's bit again of just like, yeah, no, I know. This is how this is how it goes. I know how the story is about to play out this time. Yep. You've got the kind of apocalypse scenario again. And again, it's the the entire disc at risk in Check your watch. Oh gosh, a yeah. couple of couple of hours, couple of days tops. So we've got to go on a grand adventure, and we've got a couple of parallel adventures this time. And I think that's cool. That shakes it off a bit more. Yeah. And uh, Pratchett said himself actually that a few books into Discworld was when he kind of discovered this thing called plot. And started, <laughs> <laughs> started working with that a bit more. So that was quite interesting, really. And it is nice to see him explore the typical the hero's journey. Oh yeah, absolutely. With the twenty-six books behind him of experience, and I'm not sure he could have done this. You know, he he spread the first out over two books, which I'm not saying was a bad thing to do because I enjoyed them. But um, he managed to put, I would say, almost the same amount of value into this novella. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the same amount of kind of character development. Obviously, there's no two flower, which is always upsetting. Um, yeah, and. I, I, I'm upset with every book that doesn't have to. So. But- <laughs> I do like to headcanon that because Cohen's decided he he can't be bothered to be emperor anymore, he's left Two Flower in charge in the empire. Oh, that would make sense, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's just a nice thought. Yeah. It's a good deep exploration of the hero's journey done over much fewer words than a Discworld book yeah. would normally be. Yeah, and I think he's kind of learned his lesson with the... Not learn his lesson, but I think he's improved the way he does scenes like the the, the tunnels of terror, whatever they're called, um, the impossible case of dread. Sorry, um, <laughs> because instead of doing a blow by blow account of what happens to our heroes through the impossible case of dread and seeing the deaths of all the 
men and seeing the horrible, unspeakable beasties. Instead, we see them come out the other side and we know what happens because that's the point. We, yeah. because it's parodying a very known story. And, and quite apart from that, we've seen Pratchett write it before. So we know what yeah. happens. Everyone gets beaten up by the old men and there was a giant fish and... <laughs> The minstrel got briefly eaten. Yeah, it's fine. And there's there's some perfect, as you know, bobbing in there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. It's the exposition, sorry. Yes. As you know, Bob's when it's done clunkily, isn't it? Or um, I think Mark described it once as, as you know, my father, the king. Yes. <laughs> Hi, sis. <laughs> Hi, sis. Isn't it weird that our father died three years ago and we haven't seen each other for six months? How are you? Well, as you know, <laughs> my terrible drug addiction. <laughs> um, and yeah, one more little bit I'd say is that, although, as you quite rightly point out, uh, Zine, Zine of the Raven Hair Warrior, whatever she's called, um, is got to be Zena's Warrior Princess also. I'd say there's not quite a parallel, but it's a nice evolution. We had Henna the Henna Haired, Herod of the Henna Haired Harridan. Heron of the Henna Haired Harridan. Thank you. Um, I think the point I made when we were covering that book was is it parody if you're just doing the thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she was, you know, she was clearly trying to break some tropes as well in it. And yeah. it, was, it wasn't perfectly done. Um, and here I think we have another ex haired name, yeah. uh, female hero who uh, is allowed to be one of the elderly badasses. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. She's trope breaking in a different way. Yeah. And um, I mean, not that Pratchett wasn't capable of it at that point, because by equal rights, obviously, we had a couple of elderly women badasses. But yeah. that, um, in this partic- particular set of tropes with the heroes and the whatever, we don't have Bethan and Her- Herida. Uh, we have Scary Old Vina, Lady. the Ravenhead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Vina, thank you. Oh, gosh, sorry. My, my throat's hurting now. I've got I've got the sympathetic yelling at a drag show syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Vina's interesting, actually. I hadn't thought about comparing her to Herona, but I, she's got a trope I enjoy a lot more, which is putting her knitting down and beating up a lot of people. Exactly. <laughs> Strong Og vibes. There's definitely a distant relation in there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe they've got Mona Og as a common cousin. <laughs> <sighs> she does. Um, and the thing is, it is still very trophy because she's wearing the stupid boob armor and that. But it's yeah. allowed to be funny. Um, annotated Pratchett made the point of. You could assume that her armor is based on Xena Warrior Princess's armor, but it could also just be generic woman in fantasy thing armor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she, you, yeah, no, it's great. And the illustration's great as well. And oh yeah, she looks amazing. And it's really fun to because um, obviously I ranted, I think, a bit about the way Josh Kirby illustrated stuff. And this isn't an anti-Josh Kirby episode of the podcast. It's just a very pro Kirby. Considering yes, where in the timeline so. we're at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I like that he has not drawn a breasting boobily as such. No. Um, although it'll be interesting to see how he draws the characters that are a bit breasty booby. Um I mean she's still fairly breasting boobily, it's oh, just yeah, not she, as... does, she does certainly have the assets. Uh yeah. But I'm trying to recall what Angua looks like to Paul Kibby, and it's definitely not like Josh Kirby's version. Yeah. <laughs> different vibes, different vibes. Yeah. But again, like Josh Kirby's was meant to be the the parody version. A different artist could have probably thought about drawing this so she basically looks like a um, 
like a normal woman, maybe slightly curvy, yeah, but with grey hair and he hasn't, he's kind yeah. of drawn the age really beautifully in the way mm. like armour slightly cuts in so you get a little bit of a chub roll around it. Yeah. Which I, I just, I love it. I think it's a really good illustration. I think it's goals. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I would like to look like that. I'll get working <laughs> on it. Like, I and can't make my sword. <laughs> yes. I can't make myself a breastplate. I can sew. I can't do metal work. <laughs> Yet. You told me I wasn't allowed to forge. I said not in your current apartment. All it's right, for your fine. own good. <laughs> for the same reason, I, I won't let you get a parrot. Also fair. Well, what if I write exactly dog? the same reason? I don't think the parrot would necessarily set fire to the place. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> for God's sake, don't get a forge and a parrot. That's just asking for slapstick hilarity, <laughs> which is never in reality good for your insurance. Yes, all right. Very good point. <laughs> So, <laughs> speaking of unhinged rants, <laughs> you've labelled your talking point thus. <laughs> Sherbet lemons and swamp dragons. This is basically just a I really like this book talking point. Oh, good. Tell, um, me, tell me about this book, Joanna. But specifically this illustrated medium, and we already talked about the fact that like so much amazing little extra stuff ends yeah. in it. Mark explains the idea of Sherbet lemons. Yeah, Quite I had well. to go back and check that. He kept himself interested by dropping what he called Sherbet Lemons into the text, new jokes, footnotes, and even whole scenes. Um, the name Sherbet Lemons was inspired by a sweet shop he remembered from his childhood, whose proprietor would always add a few extra sweets to each bag once the official amount had been measured. And there's so many, like, all of his books have this, but I think this is just so crammed full of them. This is mm. what I was saying about this being like the normal Discworld novel number of jokes, but crammed into half the amount of pages. Yeah. Like, right from the beginning, you get the little joke about Republican bees. <laughs> um, there's all of these amazing, like, Leonard designs kind of scattered oh, throughout the text. The handwriting. Yes, Can you imagine the handwriting. how long it took to, to organise that font? Yes, absolutely. Oh, I wonder what software um, they used for that, because back in the day it wasn't as easy. Well, they were using vector software, I guess. So. Oh, yeah. But I don't know if that... Do you know what? This is not the time for software speculation. <laughs> <laughs> you get um, a beautiful bit of illustrated map, which does actually match up with the then late, much later produced Discworld map. Clutch isn't in quite the same place, but about, like the shape of the landmass and everything all matches up. Mm. Um, although for those who have the map, which I've currently got hanging behind me, it works, but you have to turn the page upside down. Ah, good. Uh, <laughs> I'll demonstrate properly at the end for our video watchers. I'm not going to get up and do it now on That's this audio a good medium. Idea. <laughs> oh, God, um, so beautiful. Eh? Oh, it is. Uh, you've got the iconic death illustration, which I forgot was from this book. Yeah. Um, but that image of death sitting there with the kitten, that's a very, very famous one that's turned up. That, that gets used a lot. Um, I think almost every time we've done one of those headcanon threads on Twitter, someone has like done a death one and sent it to us with that specific picture. Yeah. Well, it's almost, it, 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 it's very practically, isn't it? Because it's, it's the serious, sombre, grim reaper with his full drawn up, looming over you in perspective and the, the black and the blue and the thunk kitten. <laughs> but also in the image of like just death sat at the table with the kitten yeah. so not the one with the giant hourglass in the background but the mm -hmm. one a couple pages before it's like page 68 in mine I think mm -hmm. um, death's got this very 
sort of happy, sad expression. It's almost like this, I hope you like me expression. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah, the little eyebrows going up a bit in the middle. (laughs) The big one and my kind of case study for this point about why I love this book so much (laughs) is um, it's page 62 in my paperback version. I think it's slightly earlier in the hardback. It's the varieties of the swamp dragon page. (laughs) This is amazing. So there is only half over this two page spread. There is there is less than half a page of actual story text. An entire yeah, (laughs) an entire page is taken up with this like numbered illustration of these swamp dragons, and then this list of all the different varieties. Mm. And it's so good. It's just joke after joke. You have the smooth courser, noted elongation of the themes. Um, you've got the nothing fjord blue tendency towards homesickness. That one's a Monty Python reference. <laughs> I'd just... forgotten where I'd seen a Monty Python reference when we were talking about John Cleese earlier. I was like, oh, fuck, I forgot to note that. And there it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just joke after joke after joke. Wivel spiker, yeah. excitable, walks into windows. Yeah. Golden deceivers, don't like them, they're children. <laughs> Gutley's leaper. Spike Nose Regal, one of the most beautiful of the classic dragons, hate shoes. Like this page alone, this could act as like a comedy monologue with the right performer. Like it made me think, uh, you know, that sketch I've talked about on the podcast before, I think the Rowan Atkinson one where he's just taking the register. And oh, it's yes, just yes, Rowan yes, Atkinson yes, yes, yes. reading a list of names that get progressively sillier. Ugh, yes. Like, could you imagine Rowan Atkinson just reading out this list? Yes. Oh, yes. Somebody should hire him immediately. That's before you start taking into account the actual visual of all of these dragons. Yeah. Who all managed to look so ridiculous and sad. Apart from the happy one, who is Ramkin's optimist. Yes. Seldom explodes. (laughs) You never tagged yourself. Jessington's blunt, rare and very stupid. (laughs) Tendency to slimp. No, I think if I'm going to tag myself i'm gonna go with lion-headed cowper a large breed easy to keep but often afflict- afflicted with skiplets oh i'm sorry to hear that <laughs> <laughs> uh, later on um the last page we have in this section actually uh, is uh leonard's annotated um dragon illustration yeah that was another one i noticed um and one of the labels is beard and thrips unkempt i was like thrips thrips that's a thrips. fun word and i googled it and it is uh uh Minute, slender insects with fringed wings and unique asymmetrical mouth parts. Ah. So I don't know if that was deliberate, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised because perhaps it's Gardner. My favourite is um, egg, badly constructed on that one. (laughs) Body shape, lumpy. But yeah, just next to that Varieties of Swamp Dragon page, like the following page has like almost just a single paragraph of story text. And then this in like intense diagram of a dragon's wing... Mm. And like a little mini essay from Leonard Dequam. So it's like, it's not so much that, oh, this is a particularly good illustration, but it's just the amount of extra amusement that you get across this two page spread just because you have the illustration there to give it more detail. Yeah. And like the the eyes on the wing that he's drawn on there. Yeah, absolutely. And you get the like little sketches of dragon in flight and dragon exploding. (sighs) And like you said, the absolutely, you've got the beautiful handwriting you've got this note at the bottom i cannot find my treaties of the structure of wings oh miss triplet who dust my workshop by you all things are consumed 
Um, I should also point out the Varieties of Swamp Dragon page is attributed at the bottom to the show Judge's Guide to Dragons by Lady Sybil Rampkin, oh. of course. Uh, available from the Cavern Club Press, Ank Morpork, at uh, $20, which is either incredibly expensive or inflation <laughs> has gone rampant since we heard about salaries last. Quite I, I do quite like how Dollar doesn't seem to have any fixed amount at all through these books. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Uh, someone should uh, make an effort to make the money work. Anyway, absolutely, um, don't do it. <laughs> and then you also get just like really great, funny little conversations that don't necessarily have anything to do with the illustrations. But again, it's just like, oh, how many extra jokes can I cram into a page? Yeah, the choking on a cucumber thing we talked about earlier. Just up the page from that, and they're talking about um, the evil queen Pamdar, who ended up getting married to Mad Hamish. And it was like, oh, that was some time ago. I don't think it lasted. But she was a devil woman. We all get older, Harry. She runs a shop now. Pam's Pantry. Makes marmalade. <laughs> well, she used to queen it on a throne on top of a pile of skulls. Well, I didn't say it was very good marmalade. <laughs> I want to know what ended up happening to Watsy, who walked off with Kring. Yes. Barbarian the first. Fran. Fran. Fran the Barbarian. Fran, our first I imagine one. he died. <laughs> yeah, probably. He didn't look I mean, like someone who was going to survive that long, was he? He probably got eaten in an impassable cave of dread, to be honest. Mm. Well, it is impassable. It is, it is, I've heard. And yeah, like literally a couple lines after that, it wasn't very good marmalade. You get the um, Vincent the Ripper choking to death on a concubine. <laughs> I think you mean cucumber. <laughs> very important difference in a salad situation. <laughs> So you get all of those extra details and moments and jokes like on the Pratchett side of it. And then you get all this extra detail and beautiful moments on the like art side of it. Like when you get to that patch that Carrot has sewn, mm. like it's a beautiful illustration of the turtle. You've got the ship going in the oval around it and it's meant to look like reminiscent of the NASA logo. Mm. You've got the silly Latin slogan around the edge of we are about to die, don't want to. You've got the ank and the Morpork. You have got the ank and the Morpork. And then you look at it closer and you realise, because obviously this is an image depicting a stitch patch, you can see the stitching. Yeah. This guy in acrylics, and like, you're more of a visual artist than me. I mean, I'm sure you've got much more of an appreciation for how fucking difficult things are. It's you making, can look at it. It's making me wonder how big the original was. I think it must have been quite big. Because I was reading one of his interviews saying like for a normal book cover, he'd draw it, he'd paint the original in like A4 or A3 or sometimes even bigger to um, indulge himself, I think he said. Yeah. So I wonder how big some of these were. I think they uh, must, some of them must have been I mean, massive. I think like the death of discs. Oh God. They're all in um, private collections, I think now, the uh, at least most of them are the originals, which is a... I, I would obviously my hands tiny on ones cost a lot of money. I saw yeah. like a one that recently been sold on auction, and it was a tiny little original. Um, it was like twelve hundred pounds. So. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, I'm just completely in awe of the visible stitches on that illustration of the patch. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's why this is such a fantastic book and such a fantastic medium for it. Like, not all of Pratchett's work, I think, lends itself brilliantly to illustration slash no, yeah. needs illustration. As like much as we try really... and force it into our headcanon movies. Yeah. But the work really does speak speak for itself. But in this, you've just got this these incredible two mediums working together and it only works because it was done together. Yeah, because it was decided from the start this is what it was going to be. Um, which, you know, again, is kind of why Eric was kind of a weird standalone book. Um, yeah. But I, this would be even weirder, I think, as one. 
I do think it's also kind of noticeable that the two biggest kind of illustrated ones have both been Rincewind stories, although this isn't as Rincewind-centric, yeah. but he's very present. He's very much part of it. Yeah. And just other silly little details, like you get to um, fairly early on, you've got this kind of pile of barbarian stuff, and it's like a couple of walking sticks propping up a sword. Mm. And then there's like a chainmail covered hot water bottle next to a roll of toilet paper. Yeah. The the page that has the Velcro frying pan on also has like a sunflower playing the ukulele and oh do you remember you used to... sorry the, the dancing things yeah 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 i used to have one of those um but also has to the left um a picture of a an eagle holding a fish yes which is a little bit of illustrative foreshadowing <laughs> yes that's fantastic and um is that the same one that's got the pen for writing upside down yes yeah yes. Yeah, yeah like the apocryphal NASA wasting its time and money on it. And Russians brought a pencil. Yeah. Whereas Which in, I love. In, in fact, it was really quite necessary to have the pen and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I still like Vesinari's response of, could you not simply turn the paper up the other way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to know Vesinari hasn't quite got a grasp of what's going to happen yet. <laughs> it's quite nice to see Vesinari, not fallible, but he doesn't need to know how it's all going to work. Yes. Because he is take he is his skill is in having someone who does know how all of this works. But getting a chance to see veterinary not understanding something is is a joy. Mm-hmm. In a, not understanding something technical as opposed to not understanding why Nobby Knobs is employed by the watch. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. But yes, it's beautiful. Oh, and the um. Sorry, I will stop banging on at the moment, but the kind of illustrated letters starting sections after section breaks as well, oh, like yeah. the little illuminated letter at the beginning. Oh, I love me an illuminated letter. I do. It's just another joy. Wonderful. Anyway, yeah. So I think this book is an absolute delight and I think it's such a great medium to be able to cram in all of this extra stuff. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that they both got the room to really experiment with it all. Yes. Even if Rob had to do a lot of 100-mile trips to Dunstable. Well, that's what he's there for. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Lucky Get they didn't ask him to dig a trench there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you got an obscure reference for Neil for me, Francine? I have. Um, Amazing. So speaking, actually, this follows in quite nicely of Leonard's little random notes. Um, when he's talking about the uh, page 44 on mine, so God knows on yours, um, he's describing an orbit, basically. And he mm-hmm. calls it the fold that never ends or a ring path. And I was like, ring path, that's a lovely term for it. So did a little Google, a ring path orbit search terms. And I found the word within this paragraph. If Angland had gone the way of between sea ayats, there is every likelihood that our lot would have fallen forever in the middle sea ring path, living Germany, leaving Germany to the full ownsomeness of the outsider with unforeseeable seeds of stride for after coming years. Um, so I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, cool. That's my reaction. So I scrolled up on that page and I turned out to be on a fandom wiki for something called Anglish. Um, and this was coined in 19, June 1966 edition of Punch magazine. Um, right. and it was written for the 900th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. I'm sure you knew immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Um, but Paul Jennings coined the term with three articles entitled 1066 and All Saxon. 
And the point of those, he was rewriting history in the language we should have had if Normans had been defeated at Hastings. Also, he and somebody drawn inspiration from William Barnes, the Dorset poet who wanted us to say folk wane instead of omnibus, both believe. And now it's a whole thing. Amazing. Um, yeah. So there's this fandom wiki called the Anglish Moot, um, which has all kinds of shit on. I can't go too far into it. I'm going to link it. But um, the aim of Anglish is, according to this website, um, English with many fewer words borrowed from other tongues. Because of the fundamental changes to our language, to say that English people today speak modern English is like saying that the French speak Latin. The fact is that now we speak an international language. The Anglish project is intended as a means of recovering the Englishness of English and of restoring ownership to the language of the language to the English people. And that sounds a bit UKIPy, but it's really not. I've looked through the whole thing. It's all linguistics nerds. Um, okay, cool. I was going to say, that does <laughs> yeah. sound very UKIP. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's really, really not. It's jo it's jokey, but also serious in that they're like looking into the etymology of various things and like, okay, so if this word evolved like this, then how would this old English word have evolved if we didn't use this loan word? Yeah. So it's all stuff like that. It's very, very cool. Um, oh, and I didn't say the actual important bit. Uh, ring... <laughs> Ringfath was in the glossary of that same page as uh, Orbit. Oh, cool. So I don't know whether Pratchett just came up with the same word because it's fairly obvious, I guess, um, yeah. or whether he had read it and subconsciously remembered it or whether he just remembered it because it's a really cool set of articles. So Ringfath. Awesome. Orbit. That delights me. That was a really fun accidental tangent this morning. Oh, And I'd well, love I to go further into it. I'm, I'm trying to argue myself out of doing a rabbit hole because it's so tenuously linked to Discworld. But... <laughs> <laughs> You also did remind me on the Battle of Hastings thing that the title page, the kind of illustrations at the top and bottom are supposed to sort of evoke the Bayer Tapestry. Very good, very good. Ah! <laughs> oh, which, and also um, the dedication is to old Vincent, which I've now remembered. Yes. <laughs> Choked on a concubine. Which, yeah, yeah listeners, if you're more interested in the Bayer Tapestry, Your Dead to Me has a very good episode on it. <laughs> I thought you said if you're more interested in the Bayer Tapestry, you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> We do I'm not stand the Bayer Tapestry <laughs> on this podcast. Thumbs down. I did actually get <laughs> to go and see the Bayer Tapestry, but I slept through the whole thing. What? I was two. Oh. I was like in a push chair. So I have been wheeled past the Bayer Tapestry while unconscious. Well, you probably absorbed some of the knowledge. Horstic. <laughs> but fun, fun fact about the Bayer Tapestry is uh, it seems to be the more important the person on the horse, the larger the horse's dick. Which is why I said, yeah. Horstic. Fun fact. We can't finish with that. Say something else. <laughs> I think that's everything we can say on the <laughs> horse dicks of the Bayer Tapestry and of the Discworld novella, The Last Hero, on the a Discworld fable. On the first half of it. We'll be back next week with the next half of it. Mm -hmm. The final half, because there's only two, because they're halves. God, we're getting really good at this maths, aren't we? <laughs> God, take me off this podcast now. Do you want me to try and do the outro? I'll do it. <laughs> Just confiscate the podcast from me. Um, which begins on page 80 after the beautiful double spread of the Silver Horde led by Cal uh, Caleb Cohen. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd rather die than sign my name, said Boy Willie. And we will be going right through to the end of the book. Yeah. 
Until next week, dear listener, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make Ye Fret, on Twitter at Make Ye Fret Pod, on Facebook at the True Show Make Ye Fret. Join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. Uh, email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and pointless albatrosses, the True Show Make Ye Fret Pod at gmail.com. And if you would like to support this podcast financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the True Show Make Ye Fret and exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. I finally t- went on about the flower clock recently. Yay! And uh, there'll be a proper rabbit hole this month because I've recovered. Oh yeah, Joanna got the COVID between. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure if you mentioned that. And until next time, dear listener, don't let us detain you. They put a wig on the lettuce. <laughs>